Hello, friends, and welcome to World Build With Us, the podcast where we create fantastical worlds with help from you, our listeners. My name is Rob Hilferty, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Daniel Quinn and Courtney Staples. On today's episode, we have an interview with Dr. Christopher Ferguson. We'll call him Chris for short. But before we get to that interview, we always want to remind you that if you want us to build your worlds, you can always go to our website, worldbuildwithus.com, submit a prompt, and we will build your world live on air. Not live, kind of pre-recorded, but still all the same thing. If you want to follow us on social media, we are on Twitter over at Let's World Build. If you want to come join our Discord and have discussions with us there, we always think that's probably a little bit easier. There's a link for that in the description. And of course, if you're feeling particularly generous or you just want our sweet, sweet patron-only episodes, you can follow our link for our Patreon below. Now, on to the interview. Hello, and today we are joined by Dr. Chris Ferguson. Uh, Chris, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, it's awesome to be on. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Uh, Now, Chris, for those of us who don't know anything about you, coming in brand new and clean. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. So, oh God. Yeah. So what what I like to say about myself. So I am a psychology professor at Stetson University. Um, I'm actually a clinical psychologist uh, licensed in Texas, and I mostly do research on media effects. And a large part of that over the last two decades really has been on video games and video game violence and all that kind of stuff. So I was really, really involved in that debate, which seems to be finally dying off. So I'm kind of looking mm. for new things to get myself in trouble with um, at this point. <laughs> but uh, but I did a wide range of, of research in like, you know, body image and media. And I did a couple things on 13 Reasons Why when that was a thing mm. a few years ago and uh, a few other areas as well. And, um, and more recently, I've, I've gotten in, involved in some of the debates about like Dungeons and Dragons, that, which have resurfaced in the last few years. So uh I'm always looking to see what people are upset about and then trying to bring some some data to hopefully help shape some of those arguments that are going on. Um, and I'm also married. And I have a 18 year old son. So you know, other than that, I don't really think there's anything terribly fascinating about me. We're, we're just going to skip over your your being an author as well. That's true. I, I, have, I have written a few books. So so I, um, I, I have one that's just out. Well, the last couple of years has been out. Uh, how Madness Shaped History, which is more or less what it says on the box, and uh, sort of an intersection of history and psychology, focusing in on all kind of like all all bad stuff, you know, which is really what interests me. Uh-huh. Um, and then I have one on video games, Moral Combat, Why the War on Violent Video Games is Wrong, which again is pretty much what it says on the box. And I actually did write, in terms of like world building and stuff, I actually did write uh, a mystery novel set in Renaissance uh, Florence. So uh, that was a lot of fun to write. If I, if I had more time, I'd write more fiction, I think, than all these mm-hmm. academic articles nobody reads. And and you've fallen into our trap, which is, of course, a- anyone who is a longtime listener will know that I love history. And when you hit me with a Florentine mystery set during the Renaissance, I have to know a little bit more about that. So first, let's start <laughs> with the very obvious question about all of your books. Are any of them good? They're, they're, you should really stop reading Stephen King. I mean, he's an amateur compared to uh, what I can provide, you know, for you all. Yeah, no, no, I love him. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, no, I I think so. I mean, uh, you know, I'm actually not uh, uh, yet ready to compete with the Stephen King empire, but uh, Mm -hmm. I, I, you know, 
I enjoyed writing them. <laughs> I can say that much. <laughs> you know, it seems like a few people enjoy reading them. Absolutely. Uh, so it's always good to in increase that base of people who give it a shot. But mm -hmm. uh, yeah, yeah, check out the books. Uh, read them. If you love them, write a review on Amazon. If you don't, don't write a review on Amazon. Excellent. That's my that's my suggestion. And and speaking of history, of course, can we get into your history of like why you got into not just games or, or video games, but tabletop RPGs as well? Because those are two fields of interest that you seem to be mm. you have a vested interest in. You have a love for those topics. Yeah. So I'd love to hear where you where your kind of origin story, because I feel like that's another good place we can start. Yeah. Well, I'm, yeah, I'm a total geek, uh, basically. So probably back, you know, in the early 80s, you know, when Dungeons and Dragons was first edition and I was probably like 11 or something like that is uh, when I first started playing Dungeons and Dragons. So I've, I've been a Dungeons and Dragons and uh, to a much lesser extent Pathfinder uh, player mm -hmm. since since I was really a middle school, you know, probably late elementary middle school kid. So that's been, you know, four decades at this point i'm getting old um and uh, i've always loved it and i still play you know a couple times a week uh mostly mm -hmm. online these days mm -hmm. but that's still for me it's a big stress reducer and i love it and uh you know getting into uh the head of another fictional person is always a lot of fun and, and building mm -hmm. these stories is always a lot of fun uh, i like you know kind of complicated narratives and all that stuff so it's uh it's a lot of fun to be involved in that stuff but uh but i also kind of lived through that period you know in the early years of dungeons and dragons where there was this kind of like satan panic and the idea is mm -hmm. like you know you were going to run off and commit suicide or you know engage in violence or develop schizophrenia you know really kind of summon the devil yeah yeah yeah, yeah really stuff. kind of silly stuff i mean it's kind of laughable at this point you know to, yeah. to look at what happened with dunces and dragons but uh mm -hmm. but i kind of did live through that and at the same point there were panics over like rock and roll music you know around mm -hmm. uh you know everything from cindy lopper to acdc yeah, same same basic arguments suicide violence satanism um, I don't know how Cindy Lauper got you know, roped into that, but she did. Um, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> but, uh, yeah. And then, then, I, then there were my like wasted twenties, you know, basically. And I, I didn't really kind of come back to have anything, you know, uh, constructive to contribute to any of this until I got back into graduate school. And, and when I was getting my PhD in clinical psychology, I was originally really interested in studying, uh, you know, there's these different groups of like, like undergraduate psychology majors that they're, there's kind of like the group that started off as a bio major and realized that was hard and decided psychology was easier. Um, there's kind of the group that want to learn about like why they or their family are mentally ill. And then there are the people who watch Silence of the Lambs, you know, and uh, and I was really in that last category of, uh, of a person. So I didn't really have like a good reason. I wasn't trying to help anybody uh, for getting into psychology. I just wanted to study like, you know, serial killers and stuff like that. Um, but I actually did do research on inmates, you know, so I was working with you know, in sort of a crossover between psychology and criminal justice. And uh, and that was actually kind of how I ended up becoming involved in the video game stuff is because that was right around the time of the Columbine massacre. And mm. It was a couple of years after 1999, but it was pretty close to it. And so there were these big debates about video games and, mm -hmm. and people were saying really kind of ridiculous things like, you know, that these mass homicides were caused by video games and the effects of video games on aggression were similar to smoking and lung cancer. And that, you know, 30% of violent crimes would go away if only we got rid of violent television and video games Jeez. and stuff. Wow. But yeah, it was, and these were scholars, you know, saying these things and, and politicians, mm -hmm. of course, repeating mm -hmm. 
And, uh, you know, and so there's this like defect in my personality that the more someone tells me that something's absolutely true, the less I believe them. And, you know, and so I get <laughs> really too. curious. And, and that was sort of what led me into the video game stuff, even though, I mean, I play video games. And so I, I certainly enjoy video games and I guess, you know, would consider myself a gamer, but, you know, but it really was this curiosity about how nuts some scholars had gotten over this issue. And I wanted to see what the actual data looked like. And, uh, and it turns out it's way easier to study video games than it is mass homicide perpetrators. Um, <laughs> so it ended up being super productive for me. So, uh, yeah, so I just became this kind of like video game researcher guy. And, uh, and then that broadened out to, well, if this field is, is in so much trouble, what about like the idea that looking at thin actresses causes eating disorders? Could that be wrong too? Mm -hmm. You know? Mm -hmm. And so that got me, in, I, I wanted to look at that. Well, what about this thing about 13 reasons why and suicide? Yeah. So it just kind of broadened out from there. And then finally full circle back to Dungeons and Dragons <laughs> in the last couple of years. So that's kind of the narrative. Yeah. That's really fascinating. I think that that's like, that's a really interesting journey in and of itself. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I feel like the journey that you're seeing now, especially with video games, is becoming like so much more part of the culture. Mm. And there's that cultural acceptance that we've seen that's come a long way, even since I was a kid. You know, back then it's like you were a nerd if you played video games. And now it's like, yeah, I'm a dad who plays, you know, like video games on my night off or something mm -hmm. like that. There's an absorption in the culture that we're seeing with uh, video games that I think is. I think we're seeing a normalization of the habit in general. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you can see references to video games. I remember going to a hockey game just, you know, the last year uh, post COVID and uh, you know, they had, you know, some music where like, I just remember this usher. So one of the guys that, you know, kind of like worked at this, uh, you know, theater, well, not theater, but uh, um, stadium doing the floss, you know, in the middle of, you know, sort of <laughs> on camera, you know, uh, while this hockey game was going on, which of course is sort of a reference to uh, Fortnite, you know, so uh, even in indirect ways, a lot of references to video games are, you know, have made their way into popular culture and, uh, and, and such. And so, yeah, I mean, we're, we're seeing that sort of normalization. I mean, we still, we still do get, you know, the occasional uh, old dude waving his cane, you know, at the kids crossing the yard, you know, kids are there with their music and their video games. And, you know, so, so that, that contingent still is existing, but you know, what's happening is essentially the same as what happened with rock music in the eighties and, and, you know, radio in the 1940s and comic books in the 1950s is that, that, that audience of old people who didn't like it are, are dying, you know, yeah. and uh, that's sort of the solution. <laughs> I'm not advocating this, by the way, I don't, you know, if, Ferguson advocates genocide of old people and, you know, no, 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 but that's, that's kind of how, you know, moral panics tend to go away is eventually the audience for those panics, you know, just ages out. And uh, yeah, I, I would just add an Alice Cooper concert, you know, and uh, back in the seventies, he was controversial because of his mm, yeah. you know, horror themed shows. But mm -hmm. now, you know, it's all old people going, <laughs> he's 74, you know, so <laughs> that's just the way it goes. Yeah. And speaking of normalizations um, with, with tabletop games, I feel like we're almost there too, where it's starting to be a thing that mainstream audiences understand to some degree. So I had some questions specifically in the psych world, because, um, you know, World Combat has chock-full information about um, the myths of violence in video games. But what do we know, like, 
from a clinical research point of view about tabletop games, if anything. Like I'm wondering, because one of the, the facts that came up that I thought was really cool was how like engagement with violent media actually decreases violence mm. in the real world, which was yeah. surprising. Mm-hmm. And I remember growing up with tabletop games when I was like, I don't know, 13, probably when I first started playing, it was like second edition. Yeah. And it made I feel like it made me more socially capable over time. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering like, um, and, and, and as I continue to play, like I feel more comfortable speaking publicly too so it's like is there any known relationship or is it something that's just not explored yet yeah it's not as explored as thoroughly as as video games and there really are two main reasons for that is one other than that period in the 80s and now perhaps a bit more recently now with sort of the debate over like orcs and racism and that kind of stuff Mm -hmm. uh there really haven't been as big yeah, it's consistent an outcry about Dungeons and Dragons, particularly during these kind of like 90s and 2000s, which really were these kind of like good years for video game research. I don't mean good, like the research was good, but in terms of like yeah, a lot of it was produced, mm-hmm. um, you know, during those years. And also just that and, and, and scholars do respond to these like, you know, like you know, there's money right laying around when right. like society is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 This is there's, there's cash to be had. We, we want to feed our families, too, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. but you know, but there also was a sense of like video games are really easy to study. Right. That was kind of my comment about much easier than mass homicide perpetrators, but mm-hmm. you know, so you can bring people, you can bring college students into lab and have them play different video games for half an hour and then measure them on some, you know, level of, it's going to be obviously very mild aggression. We can't have people beat each other mm-hmm. up in the lab. Yeah. Uh, as much fun as that would be, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, <laughs> the, the, the rules get in the way as they always do. But, um, you know, so, with Dunces and Dragons, I mean, these are like games that take place over hours and days mm, and yeah. weeks and months mm-hmm. and years. And so getting the same sort of experience uh, out of that, uh, even if you're going to have one session, we're really talking three, four hours, you know, as opposed to a 30 minute video game, you know, so mm-hmm. that puts a lot of roadblocks in the way of, you know, sort of studying that, at least in, in experimental uh, studies. Now you can do you know, correlational survey-based studies and and uh, and do stuff like that. Uh, but there again, I don't think that right now there's even even with the sort of like orc racism debate that there's really that much energy behind it, that, uh, or at least there don't seem to be a lot of like grant dollars laying around right. to uh, to study this thing. So there's not a ton of energy um, behind doing research. So we don't really know a lot in terms of like you know negative effects. There has been some energy around the idea of like using Dungeons and Dragons in therapy, you know, so yeah, and again, okay. we're, we're still talking about like a handful of studies. And so I think like you're referring to, you can like, like take people who may for a variety of reasons, you know, struggle with making social connections um, and bring them together in this sort of, you know, I'm going to call it a play setting. And that, I just mean that very broadly, but, you know, a, a fun setting. And you can work within that setting both to reduce anxiety and stress, but also to, you know, develop social skills uh, and things mm-hmm. like that. And so the evidence mm-hmm. there, it's not a huge evidence base, but the evidence base does seem to suggest that the Dunces and Dragons uh, is effective, at least for certain populations of individuals, uh, as a way of uh, making therapy stick, you know, or making therapy mm-hmm. work well with those particular groups of individuals. It sounds like we need to give you more money so that you can <laughs> always do more studies. Yeah. <laughs> well, speaking of studies, I'm not sure if this was an official or a psychological study or anything like that, but I do remember reading an article about uh, prison groups who would have RPG sessions after mm. they are released from prison mm-hmm. and how having that community of people and having that community like to build, you know, like upon actually helps 
uh, with recidivism rates when it mm-hmm. comes to like them going back to prison. So it kind of keeps them on like a fairly uh, state. It's a stabilizing element once they're released yeah. from prison. So I find that to be really interesting as well. And I feel like there's so much opportunity for research to go into this topic that's just been completely untouched. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's definitely the case. I mean, you know, former felons in particular, you know, we, we mm-hmm. kind of think of like the group of like nonviolent felons um, that that's a particular group of individuals who really have a tough time, um, mm-hmm. you know, coming out of prison, being mm-hmm. on parole uh, and they do face the social stigma and they, mm-hmm. and they face economic stigma as well because people don't want to hire them, you know? So yeah, we do find that issue and in fact, I'm, this is another research I'm getting involved in sort of on the side is, is getting back into criminal justice a bit. But, yeah, we do see that as a problem is that, you know, we uh, bring people back out of prison and we want them to function in society. But then we cut them off from social contact right. and we don't let right. them be employed, um, you know, and then we wonder why they commit you know, crimes again. <laughs> You know, and right, because when you when you cut them off from anything that might be a stabilizing or good effect, yeah. you're forced to go back to their like underworld contacts right. because Absolutely. that's the only force that they have. Yeah. 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 And so anything that we can do and that, you know, obviously for, you know, inmates who enjoy or former inmates who enjoy role playing games and anything you can do to develop these social contacts is going to make their lives easier. First off, they have the social support. But then they also have the networks that may help them find employment, which is going to be, you know, really the predictor of, uh, you know, reducing recidivism in the future. Absolutely. Yeah. This is specific to Moral Comics. I just recently listened to it. I was listening to audio. And we're talking about prisons and we're kind of talking about um, the effects of, of RPGs on people. So you mentioned in Moral Combat, I think it was Mass Effect, they were talking about how like the choice of um, kind of the moral path you take in the game actually has an impact or is related to, I guess, the moral attitude that you have as a player, mm-hmm. if I have that right. And now I'm wondering, granted, we have no, this is total speculation, we don't have any real research on RPGs, but RPGs often have alignments in some capacity, like some moral yeah. point of view to pick when you play a character. Mm. You know, could you talk more about the Mass Effect situation? And then like, what could that mean with tabletops? Yeah, what we tend to find uh, fairly consistently is with players in video games that uh, if you give them moral choices, that gamers will the average you know we're like 90 percent. there's always you know there's always a few like budding psychopaths out there but you know <laughs> 90 95 of gamers will choose a path that is more difficult but more moral over a course of pa- or a path mm-hmm. that is less difficult but less moral you know and uh, so actually, it, it, a lot of this data came from the Walking Dead video game where, you know, oh, the, yeah. uh, the, the company, yeah. <laughs> uh, I forget the company's name, totally. uh, actually collected a lot of this data. Mm-hmm. And they found that, you know, the players really would choose a harder path uh, if that meant, you know, sort of preserving their, you know, sense of moral integrity, if you will. Mm-hmm. This is a video game. These are not like live human beings. <laughs> you right, know, they, right. these yeah. pixels mm-hmm. don't really matter. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, we, you know, develop that. Uh, you know, sense of wanting to be consistent in our play universes with our moral concepts of what is good and what is right in, in the real world uh, as well. And you can see this in other places too. Um, you know, I, I usually try to be a front and say, I've never actually played The Last of Us 2. I played the first game, I haven't played the second one to get back. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if this is true, but I, I remember you know, hearing complaints from some players about it in the sense of like, you know, again, this is just what I heard that uh, some people didn't like it because there uh, are apparently these dogs in the game and you kind of get forced into the position of like killing them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and then the game sort of lectures you about it, I guess. <laughs> no, I, that, again, maybe that's not true. That's just what I heard. 
but but you can see there too that you know players get uncomfortable if you kind of like shove them into this moral situation where you don't give them any choice and uh, and then they're made to do something you know bad the the, the no russian level from one of the old uh, yeah. call of duties was kind of similar to that as um, you know as well so yeah people do seem to really kind of want to you know occasionally they may dabble with hey let's have an evil campaign you know whatever but it seems like for the most part people really are tied into this narrative of you know good versus evil with us being on the side of good and trying to do the right thing uh, for the most part and most people will will tend to get more enjoyment out of that sort of narrative uh again you know having played for 40 years and occasionally seeing people say you know let's try an evil pc game and it lasts for like three sessions mm-hmm. and people get bored mm-hmm. and yeah. it just isn't fun anymore um and uh, that tends to be what happens um so yeah that's you know that's, that's good news right is is that you know our our pre-existing sense of moral righteousness tends to be fairly consistent in our play spaces mm. and we're reluctant to ditch that even when it would be of no cost uh, mm. to us to do so that's mm. that's what the chaotic neutral characters get then yeah. I, like, <laughs> <laughs> I mean yeah i speaking as somebody who's a couple of times has played in like an evil one shot or evil campaign it, it's uncomfortable after yeah. a while it's like yeah. makes you feel icky <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, people don't understand the ick factor a lot of the yeah, times. Yeah. yeah. And um kind of shooting off of that, um, I was curious if you found in your own research or in research that you've seen from others, if there are any like more nuanced links between preferred types of games or even preferred play styles, methods of playing and personality traits, like uh, for example, a gamer who is very focused on, you know, the core quest versus one who's drawn more to exploration or side quest type stuff yeah there, there definitely has been some research in that area i mean I, I tend to be more involved in the sort of like you know effects type stuff so yeah, like yeah. if you play this you know does your brain melt um <laughs> you know kind of stuff but there, there definitely is a lot of a lot of that mm-hmm. out there there's a lot of you know, there's a couple theories that are sort of related to each other one's called self-determination theory mm-hmm. um and the other is uses and gratifications theory which basically say kind of the same thing is that you know a player's motivations for why they're playing uh, determine a lot in terms of like what they choose to play and then how they mm. tend to choose to play it. And mm-hmm. and there's even kind of research of like looking at Dungeons and Dragons and looking at terms of like how personality traits, you know, so there's this idea just to take a step back that we really are all kind of, you know, measurable on these kind of five basic personality traits. It's called the big five and it's mm-hmm. like extroversion, agreeableness, conscientiousness, neuroticism, and mm. uh, openness. I was gonna say, I was gonna forget one of them there. But, uh, you know, so people that are high and low in these different traits may approach games differently and may even approach their relationships with characters uh, differently. You know, so you tend to have, um, like in my situation, you know, I tend to play, I actually tend to play a lot of female characters and, and, it, and it tends to be sort of like I'm constructing another individual who I think is interesting mm-hmm. and who's going to help sort of like narrate this story. And mm-hmm. there is this kind of like parasocial relationship between me as a player and this other individual who is the character, but I don't think of myself as being, you know, the same person as, you know, yeah. this yeah. female, you know, adventurer, whereas other people may project themselves very directly. And this is basically <laughs> me, you know, that is sort of running or, or at least at very least an idealized me, you know, if, if I was going to do this, you really wouldn't want a 50 year old guy, you know, it was like, <laughs> you know, getting a, a cookie stomach you know and this kind of stuff running around doing stuff so it'd be like this big strong me maybe or, or much smarter me but it'd still be me and uh and then you get other people that the pc is really just the the mechanism for navigating through the story itself so mm-hmm. I, I remember 
way back in the 90s. I don't even remember what video game this is, but it was one of these kind of, you know, D&D based video games that was available at the time. Uh, and it was a, it was a series and, uh, there's a friend of mine, you know, and I would always like designing PCs, you know, uh, it's sort of similar to the Elder Scrolls, but it wasn't Elder Scrolls. Uh, you know, I would take it very seriously and come up, try to think of the right name for my character and the mm-hmm. right attributes. <laughs> and my friend would be like, you know, my character is, you know, horsey McHorsecock or something like that, <laughs> you know, and, uh, you know, clearly didn't take the PC, uh, himself very seriously. It was really just, you know you know, douchey McDouche face, you know, whatever, you know, and just sort of would play this, you know, it really was just trying to get through the game, mm-hmm. you know, so I think that a lot of that, like, it, those different ways of coming at the game, you know, are, are going to be depending upon personality style, and also what you're hoping to get, you know, from, uh, you know, the game itself, in terms of your motivations for playing it, and it sometimes can result, I mean, I, I was sort of taken aback, you know, a little bit like, wow, you know, you're not really invested in your character at all. Uh, <laughs> you know, that really wasn't his motivation for, you know, playing through the game. Mm-hmm. He really wanted to solve the puzzles and get the treasure and this kind of stuff, but not wasn't mm-hmm. terribly immersive in the, the uh, you know, character building aspect of, uh, you know, of the story. So, uh, yeah, there, people will definitely, you know, their personality style will definitely determine a lot in terms of like media choices and how they engage with it, which also means mm-hmm. that like what people get from media can be very difficult, how they perceive mm-hmm. it can be very uh, different you know we can even see the stuff with like the bible i mean people come this is the same book you know but or other mm-hmm. religious texts like the ramayana or whatever you know it's the same book but people come to it for different reasons and they get different things out of it you know some people want to feel like god is on their side other people want mm-hmm. to learn how to be a better person um you know some people just want stress reduction and others come to these books and learn how to hate people more you know mm-hmm. and it's a very idiosyncratic response uh, mm-hmm. and a lot of that is determined by where people are starting from in the first place that's really fascinating yeah. like yeah. that quick quick aside um are all people who are into farming simulators monsters or is that <laughs> just like yes. okay <laughs> yeah there there is no rational reason why that is fun yes yeah. uh, okay <laughs> gotcha but they're like what's the term for someone who likes to inflict harm upon himself Sadist or a masochist? Masochist. Yeah. Masochist. masochist. Yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. There's a special place in the circles of hell for those players. It's sort of like job simulators. I never got that mm-hmm. point yeah. either. Like VR here and be a, be a chef in yeah. virtual reality. I could do that in real life. I should get paid for it. Uh, I don't know why I would do it. Not not much with my cooking skills, but you know, I don't know why that's fun. But uh, you know, well, whatever. Even if your cooking skills were excellent, you still wouldn't get paid very much. <laughs> but there's no uh, judgments here. Whatever people think is fun, you know, as long as it's not farming simulators. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely not those. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll check that off the list. That's great. Yep. Is there any, so like it's briefly mentioned, if I can remember in Mortal Kombat, like touched on um, like VR stuff. Is there any new uh, research that's like on the edge into VR that, that has revealed anything interesting that you know of? Yeah, there's been, there's been a couple studies, you know, it depends on what you consider interesting, I suppose. So there've been, uh, we did one at Stetson Anything University. psychopathic. No, nothing psychopathic. No, no, virtual <laughs> reality is not going to turn you into a psychopath, um, <laughs> unfortunately. Yeah. Um, uh, only bad genes. So uh, we've done a couple studies on VR. So basically the same sort of platform of like comparing violent games versus nonviolent games, just doing it in virtual reality now because you get the, you know, the usual argument. Well, what about VR? You know, kids aren't mm-hmm. going to be able to distinguish reality from fiction. Yeah. You know, so, all right, well, looks like we have a couple more studies to do, um, you know, and uh, so we've done that, uh, which is actually pretty awesome for me because my university brought me a PlayStation 5, um, which is pretty sweet. 
but uh, the results are pretty much the same. Uh, you know, playing violent games in VR. Um, there's actually another group in New Zealand who've done some yeah, Aaron Drummond has done some of this work as well. And uh, the findings pretty much are the same as with regular video games. That there doesn't seem to be evidence that playing virtual reality games that are violent are going to increase aggression more than playing, you know, whatever that lightsaber game is. I can't remember the name of that thing. Uh, but Beat Saber. Beat Saber. Thank you. Yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't recall that. Um, so we're not we're not seeing any additional VR effects, but uh, mm -hmm. but it is fascinating to watch these things. Even with like Pokemon Go, which is augmented reality, how for like a summer people freaked out about uh, you know the idea that Pokemon Go was going to cause schizophrenia in in kids. Uh, oh, wow! Yeah, wow. yeah. There was a, there was an op ed that, <laughs> that uh, basically made that argument. Oh, uh, that that must be founded by the competition. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So mm -hmm. um, these things, you know, we're trying to tamp them down quick, you know, when they come out. But mm -hmm. uh, you never know. I mean, you know, it could be that we'll, at some point we'll cross some threshold of technology that this will really be the thing that mm -hmm. uh, causes some sort of negative effect. But the, the good news really is that if you look at fictional media, you know, now news media, maybe social media are a little bit different, but if you look at fictional media across the board, we just don't see evidence that fictional media causes changes in behavior or attitudes. Mm. And the funny thing is, is when you tell people this, they'll get angry sometimes, mm -hmm. you know, is, uh, mm. you know, it's good news, right? You don't have to worry about <laughs> your kids so much. And then they'll get pissed. Um, that right. you, you tell them it's not that big a deal. Um, well, now they have a now they need a reason that they're shitty parents, right. and that's just not acceptable. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I've I've seen you know again. I'm sort of both the right and the left. I've seen people get angry when you you tell them like, oh yeah, you know, video games aren't that big a deal, or, or you know, 13 reasons why isn't really causing teens to commit suicide and uh, you know people get pretty angry it's like oh this is okay you're not gonna be able to stop them from doing this stuff isn't it kind of good news that you know it's not really hurting them as much as you think but uh but people really kind of cling to that idea and it's, mm -hmm. it's sort of tough to let go of and there's, and there's all these myths people come up with uh, the one i see the most is the jaws myth i don't know if you ever come across that one the idea that the movie jaws caused shark depopulations um so people will kind of refer to that wow. um, mm. fairly often which it, which it did not mm. but uh people kind of go oh yeah well what about the movie jaws you know well you know what do you think happened there is not <laughs> what actually happened um but yeah wow um one thing on kind of the topic of scientific literacy um for any of our listeners who might want to go look into research around these things on their own do you have any recommendations for what to um, keep an eye out for in like papers and studies as far as uh, sample sizes types of trials and so on yeah i mean i think right in, i mean there's really two things to look out for one mm -hmm. is uh a, something called pre-registration and I, I try not to go like too far into the weeds mm -hmm and inside baseball with this. But basically that means that we've had a big problem in social science with, for a variety of reasons, scholars massaging their data to make it fit mm. their hypotheses when mm -hmm. in fact the, the, the story was, you know, so you, people can look up replication crisis in psychology on Google and there'll be a zillion articles about it. And even some of these big studies like the Stanford prison experiment and the Milgram yeah. study of electroshocks mm. and stuff like that are now yeah. being there are big asterisks on them now in terms of whether they really were true, you know, mm -hmm. um, in any kind of meaningful way. But so pre-registration is just something that um, scholars can do where we basically publish our hypotheses and our methods and our data analysis plan in advance of collecting any data, uh, which means we can't change it then when we get our data, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. so it makes it or at least it makes it harder 
yeah, I shouldn't, I shouldn't be challenging people to think of like clever ways of getting around this, but you know, it, it makes it harder for scholars to manipulate their data mm. because they've already said in advance what their hypotheses are and how they're going to mm. analyze it, you know? Mm. Uh, so they're placing their money clearly down on the roulette wheel, you know, if you will, um, with that sort of stuff. And the other thing is to watch out for is kind of the, the moral grandstanding tone. So, you know, scholarly articles really shouldn't be advancing policy or advancing moral arguments for the mm -hmm. most part. I mean, it, it, we're all human, so it's tempting to do it to some extent. But, uh, you know, that's one thing to be cautious about. If, if, you know, scholars look like they're really advocating for a particular cause or moral worldview, that can be a sign that, you know, they may, you know, be sort of captured with that ideology somewhat and really sort of attached to it. And it may actually be difficult for them to critically evaluate it. So those kind of things in combination, I think the pre-registration is probably more important. You know, we're all human. So we all get, you know, I'm no exception to it. We're all get sort of, you know, roped into some sort of worldview. But if you, I would kind of look for both of those things, you know, mm -hmm. where the data is open, the pre-registration is open. You can mm -hmm. be a bit more sure of the validity of those findings. And particularly if the scholar is trying to make some effort not to make themselves look like a moral champion, you know, mm, so if they're yeah. coming across pretty strong of, you know, looking like they're a crusader for a cause, eh, you might be a little bit wary. Mm -hmm. uh, again, you know, this, this is, you know, this is like smoking and lung cancer, you know, that kind of <laughs> right, narrative right. Uh, should be something of a red flag, you know, and you can even see this with topics that I, you know, I think are good science, you know, the global warming is one I sometimes refer to. I mm -hmm. fully believe that humans are contributing to climate change and this is something we should fix, you know, um, but you'll see this like, we're all going to die in 10 years you know, kind of thing. It's like, well, I don't know. <laughs> that, yeah. that might not be true. You know, so those are the kind of things to look a little bit out for and maybe be a little bit wary that some of those folks might have lost the thread a bit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. That's really helpful. The moral grandstanding question is like a perfect segue to one question I had, <laughs> um, which I don't want to rehash your interview in Quillette, which I think really gets deep into this and covers it. But I'm thinking back to like, especially listening to um, the Moral Comet book, like all the panics we've had, 80s Satanism, 90s kid violence, you know, 2000s mass shootings, 2010 sex. And now in 2020, there's a question of like, do, you know, does certain use of language um, make gamers racist? You know, do yeah. we need to remove things like slavery? Is biological essentialism and RPGs a cause for behaviors and players? Hmm. So, you know, like, and you cover this in Colette, but like, is this any different than those previous panics? And is there any evidence suggesting that these things have a connection? Uh, no, it's very much like these previous panics is uh, the honest truth uh, of it. You know, it has a lot of a lot of similarities and, and a lot of the things you can see that, you know, again, would sort of clue us in to perhaps being wary about some of this stuff mm -hmm. is the sort of lever that is used to insinuate that if you don't buy into the worldview that you're somehow a bad person. You know, mm -hmm. so the argument isn't coming from data. Mm -hmm. That like, look, you know, I can show you empirical studies that, you know, playing Dungeons and Dragons with evil orcs is, you know, increasing uh, racist attitudes, you know, in players. That would be, you know, intriguing and important data. And maybe we should, yeah. uh, you know, think about that if that is indeed what the data is showing. But it's more the sense of like, well, if you don't support, you know, removing slavery as a topic from Pathfinder or you don't support the 
you know, changes to the alignment system as it refers to orcs and drow and other monster races that you're mm. somehow supporting racism or prejudice, you know, in the real world. And, uh, and it's, it's very similar to, you know, 30 years ago that if, oh, so if you are saying, and, and I, I've got this very directly, you know, I, I, if you're saying, you know, playing Grand Theft Auto doesn't result in violent crime, does that mean that you don't like children? Or that are you getting? <laughs> no, I'm serious. Yeah. Like, this is true. Wow. Yeah. Or you know, of course, it'd be like, well, you must be in league with the video game industry. It's a very common mm-hmm. one as well. That you know, that's yeah, oh, it's, of course. It's, it's, yeah, you're a shill. Yeah, you're a bad person. Uh, <laughs> argument is kind of the common um, thing. And there again, I think if if people, it's, it's basically ad hominem, you know. And and if people's worldview relies on that for persuasion, you know. I mean, it can be persuasive because people want to be on the the good side, right? You know, uh, but if that's what we're relying on for persuasion, that is to me concerning, you know. And so, we don't have a lot of data on the impact of playing Dungeons and Dragons under the sort of traditionalist model, which means mm-hmm. that orcs were evil, or you know, or drow were evil, uh, and slavery was a, a thing that exists in these. You mm-hmm. know, it's an evil thing. You know, in Pathfinder, it was always an evil that was meant mm-hmm. to be bought. Yeah. Um, but it did, it was a topic that came up certainly. Yeah. And, but, you know, so that's why I, you know, I did conduct this most recent study looking at, and it was a survey based study and it was really trying to address what I thought were two of the key arguments from, you know, sort of the progressive side. Now there is this kind of progressive versus traditionalist sort of culture war, you know, uh, but I was sort of the, the arguments I seem to see that were testable at very least, other than you're just a douche if you don't sort of agree with me. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, the, the sort of the, the testable arguments were the, you know, this is causing a change in people's attitudes regarding race or ethnicity in a negative direction. And uh, there's some sort of consensus, perhaps among players, or perhaps among non-white players specifically, that this is a bad thing and this needs to change. And, and those are both testable, you know, hypotheses. Mm-hmm. And and the the short version is, you know, in the study that that I did. And granted, it's only one study, and I love to see other people replicate it in different settings with different samples and stuff. You know, they're as is pretty consistent with other forms of media. There was no relationship between playing Dungeons and Dragons and racist attitudes in real life. And there was no consensus, including among people of color, that orcs, evil orcs were offensive uh, or racist. Um, Mm -hmm. So it sort of suggests that this, again, is kind of a a minority view who are passionate. And I think, you know, they're speaking in with good intention, um, but they are a minority view and they're kind of using the sort of moral lever to get a lot of power in this debate. Mm but they don't necessarily represent a majority view among players or even players of color specifically. And that doesn't mean that we should ignore them uh, necessarily, that they are the losers here and they should all go away. But I think, you know, we do need to rebase this dialogue, this debate in the data. Mm-hmm. And here again, the news is kind of good, you know, that you can play with evil orcs, you know, mm-hmm. um, and right. people do not make the assumption that race essentialism if that's what we're going to call it, you know, in the uh, in Dungeons and Dragons means that they should adopt those views in their real lives. And most players, including most players of color, are OK with evil orcs. Uh, that's not something that's really on their radar screen uh, mm. for the most part. And, yeah, the hope is that with that, you can say, well, here's some good news. And with that data, that can help shape the debate, you know, going forward. And the resolution I'd love to see is for traditionalists and progressives to actually somehow come together 
mm-hmm. and work out compromises mm-hmm. uh, because otherwise, you know, we get these endless culture wars that just go on and on and, uh, and they don't ever really entirely seem to resolve until one group dies, you know, because it's yeah. so old <laughs> in some cases, you know, so, but, but I think that's going to do a lot of damage to the Dungeons and Dragons system or the Pathfinder system um, is if they go either if they went all woke or if they went all traditionalist, uh, you know, I think that would be yeah. a mistake. Uh, mm-hmm. And they really need to figure out a way rather than signaling virtue, which is kind of what they're trying to do. I think and I, maybe I'm you know, attributing more bad motives than I really may mean to, but, you know, they're sort of signaling allegiance to sort of wokeism because they think that's what they have to do in order mm-hmm. to maintain sales and, and not get in trouble on Twitter. And, uh, and I think it would be somewhat in their, to their benefit, their being Wizards of the Coast and uh, Paizo, uh, their benefit to kind of take the Coinbase, you know, Trader Joe's approach of saying, well, we're going to keep doing what we're doing uh, because looks like most people are buying it, you know, <laughs> um, but, you know, but they could also say, you know, we're open to making some changes, but only if like people can come together and agree that these change, you know, majority of people can agree these changes are in a positive direction who are both progressives and traditionalists. Like, you know, mm. if you're, if you're changing, I actually think some of the mechanistic changes they're making are good. You know, if, if you're giving people players more flexibility in terms of, so if you want an orc wizard, you know, with a 28 intelligence, you, yeah, why not? I mean, who, you know, that's, that's yeah. fine. You know, that gives the players more flexibility. That's a good thing. If you're doing it to give players more flexibility, that's wonderful. If you're doing it because you don't want to get in trouble with the woke on Twitter, that's not so wonderful, you know? Right, um, right. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's what a lot of people are reacting to. Mm-hmm. It's not that the mechanistic changes are necessarily bad or even the story changes are bad, but that there's this perception that it's really kind of caving to a illiberal, you know, kind of trend on the, the far left. Um, and that could be bad, you know, if that is mm-hmm. allowed to continue in, in many ways. Just as it would be bad if we were to passively acquiesce to liberal tendencies on the far right you know so this mm-hmm. isn't the far left far right one's better than the other thing mm-hmm. it's just that you know mm-hmm. we we don't want to find ourselves captured by these you know minority but very passionate very um outspoken ideologies on either side of our political yeah. divide. and then i think a major problem that we're seeing with that is just the the platform on which these discussions take place are not conducive to actual conversation. Yeah. True. They are mind poison or a misery <laughs> treadmill, which is just like, it is not designed to change minds. It is no. designed to entrench ourselves within mm-hmm. our preconceived notions of that we already hold. Yeah. The Twitter hellscape we were talking about earlier. Yeah. yeah <laughs> before exactly. you came on. Well, not just Twitter. It's it's social media. I would, I would argue right. that it's probably social media in general. In general. Yeah. yeah. Like you need longer form like options if you're really going to try and change someone's mind that's yeah. that's kind of how i feel about it and, and i think everybody most people know this but they still do it you know what i mean so it's mm-hmm. oh yeah yeah mm-hmm. they, they kind of uh are aware that this is a problem but they tend to see the problem as more on the other side right you know so yes it's absolutely right. true that yeah twitter is a dark deep evil hole of right-wing extremism you know uh it's kind of how they'll think <laughs> yeah. of it you know which it is you know <laughs> it is but it's also a dark evil you know, disturbing all of left-wing extremism. Uh, and even, you know, centrists can be assholes too, you know. So <laughs> oh, absolutely. You know, there's yeah, no, yeah. no good guys, you know, in this particular debate. I think too, the argument that, again, sort of thinking in terms of like moral levers, you know, is this argument also you'll see of like, well, what's the harm in it? So uh-huh. let's say mm-hmm. you're right. 
you know, that there's really no link between Pascal's them. wager, I guess. You know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, it, essentially what it is. It does become the sense of, well, right now what we know, or from a limited, you know, certainly amount of data, but the data suggests that what we're doing right now is not necessarily causing any harm. So there is a sort of sense of if it ain't broke, don't fix it. But mm. there also is this sense of, you know, like Jonathan Haidt and, and Greg Luciano talked about in their book, The Calling of the American Mind. We have seen this massive increase in mental health problems across all age groups. It's not a teen thing. Um, and, and we don't know why it's occurring. But, you know, one of the theories that uh, Haidt and, and Luciano have advanced is the sense of safetyism. The fact that we're mm. actually mm. we were shielding people too much. You know, we're actually... Mm. Every time someone you know, reads something they don't like, they're traumatized and they have to run to an authority figure to try mm. to like destroy the person's life who suppose, you know, rather than saying like, well, don't read that thing anymore, you know, um, or, yeah. you know, just get a grip <laughs> somewhat, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like, it's not about you. You don't have to, you know, you don't have to catastrophize it or generalize it or personalize it, you know, mm. necessarily. Mm. So mm-hmm. I think a lot of what we're doing particularly with the young today, is the opposite of what we do in therapy. We try to tell people not to catastrophize, not to personalize, mm. not to generalize. Mm. But now what we're doing with our young folks is the opposite, you know, where every slight is an emergency and you must mm. be shielded from hearing viewpoints that you don't like. Um, right. That a, a joke from 1987 means that you can no longer have a career, you know, and all this kind of <laughs> stuff. Mm. I wouldn't be surprised on the point of the research that we have, which shows no effect if, because we have violent video games actually having the effect of decreasing violence in the real world. I wouldn't be surprised if future research, you know, and of course this is speculation, mm-hmm. demonstrates that exposure to things that are uncomfortable, especially in the yeah. safe environment of an yeah. RPG, yeah. actually can help you better deal with those situations right. and understand yeah. them. So it would right. have an opposite effect. I would be surprised if that's the case. Right, like like confronting what makes you mm-hmm. uncomfortable and really examining why that mm-hmm. is rather than exactly. just being like, oh, I don't want to, I don't want to deal with that. Yeah. Especially the case of like slavery, you yeah. know, like mm-hmm. if it's it's an uncomfortable topic, it's a dark thing in our in our past and our present. Mm-hmm. And it's like if if we can grapple with that at an RPG, what safer place do you have to interact with fight that and have a chance of like actually overcoming it in a fiction than an RPG. Mm. Well, it's fascinating too. Like, you know, it it wasn't that long ago necessarily that we were encouraged to talk about slavery, you know? And so it's sort of fascinating Mm. to watch that narrative come around. Oh Uh, yeah. And and of course it used to be, if people were opposed to it, it was sort of this like, well, you know, it's white people just trying to be, you know, shielding Mm. themselves from discomfort. Mm -hmm. And now the argument Mm. is that people of color, you know, needed to be shielded from exposure to slavery as a topic. So it's, it's funny to see the sort of full circle of some of this narrative. Now I, I agree that, you know, we should be talking about slavery. You know, we shouldn't be worried about, you know, shielding white people from the realities of our history in terms of racism and slavery and that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, in fairness, we also should acknowledge that, you know, other societies did the same thing, including indigenous Mm -hmm. and African societies. You know, so we Mm -hmm. shouldn't shield people from that either. Right. But, you know, we we do need to encourage people to, you know, be able to handle these difficult topics and learn to develop the resiliency yeah, and of course, you, you can take this to absurd levels to say, well, does that mean that we should let children who are being abused stay in their families and get abused? Well, no, of course not. I mean, you know, right. there, there are obviously always going to be some, you know, common sense, hopefully, you know, limits to some of the stuff. Um, although I sometimes joke that common sense really isn't all that common. But, 
So, yeah, I mean, you know, in general, you don't want to shield people from everything, you know, that is going to cause mild stress. And that is the potential harm here is if we're basically sort of bubble wrapping, you know, role playing games and bubble wrapping life more generally, that that actually could have some negative impacts on people in terms of making them less resilient to real struggle. Does it work with regular germs if you put someone in a bubble? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You need some level of inoculation and like... Would you argue that like seeking discomfort on a safe level, like I I suppose that's kind of where we're at, where it's like finding the right level of discomfort, because from personal experience, obviously anecdotal, but like it is when I'm confronted with things and I am uncomfortable and have that opportunity to be really uncomfortable that I tend to grow or change, or at least am able to even galvanize some of the opinions that I may have. I mean, there's hours of Daniel and I yelling at each other about why the other one's wrong. But I think that having those conversations allows us to figure out the the nuances Mm -hmm. of the topic that we understand each other. Absolutely. And, and, and one of the things that I think is, is critically lacking is this idea of being able to approach a text and by text, I mean, literally anything with some kind of criticism. I, I think that Marlon James, who's a fantastic author, uh, would recommend reading all of his stuff. Basically, he he says that there is a great joy in tearing a book apart. Yeah, and I think that that is something that we have lost, where we are not allowed to read something and dislike it. We we have to read something that is good, and if it's not good, then it's bad, and then we reject it, and it's bad. We yeah. we don't examine why it's bad. Yeah. We just know that it's bad. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I definitely advocate that, you know, people should get out there and read books from perspectives they don't agree with, you know, so, oh, yeah. um, mm-hmm. you know, and that does seem to be a lost skill. And what happens oftentimes we see these debates over something uh, and you can ask people, well, have you read the book? And oftentimes, they'll, well, no, why would I? I don't want to, you know. <laughs> never would. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you don't know what's in it then, you know. And, uh, you know, and oftentimes by reading, you know, so, I mean, I've read stuff on the, I guess, what we call the far right, you know, now, or, or at least, you know, pretty far on the right. Uh, so, yeah, some of it's pretty ridiculous. You, uh, you know, you know, start chuckling with some of it, you know, and I never read stuff on the far left. I, you know, I'm not a fan of critical race theory, but I made an effort to like read, you know, the arguments uh, from people in, in that perspective. And, you know, mm-hmm. and I think what happens is, you know, to the extent now that if it comes down to, you know, my critiques of something like critical race theory, well, I, I know what they said. I know what they actually, like Delgado mm-hmm. and Crenshaw, you know, I know what the actual people said, you know, so it's not like these uh, Republican governors who are trying to ban stuff and they don't know what the hell mm-hmm. they're banning necessarily. Right. Uh, and that comes across mm-hmm. pretty badly, you know, um, and same thing, you know, if you're criticizing, you know, J.K. Rowling or Abigail Schreier, you know, for their comments about like trans individuals at least read the book or read their essays, you know, don't just go by what was on Twitter uh, because oftentimes, you know, you can disagree with them. And and in fact, I disagree with them on many points, but, but oftentimes what you think they said, what they actually said are different things. And you don't look very persuasive if you don't know what they actually said, Um, you know, and uh, so you're you're not going to like explode if you read, you know, JK Rowling's essay (laughs) on her views of, you know, you may, disagree passionately with them and that's fine absolutely and same thing if you're uh on the right you're not going to explode if you read you know ibram kendi 
uh, necessarily. You may read the whole book going, oh my God, this is so stupid. That's fine. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. You, but you should more read something and hate it and know yeah. why you hate it. Mm -hmm. And exactly. then have a good reason to hate it or, mm -hmm. or not hate mm -hmm. it or love it, whatever, you know? We don't want to be those those congressmen who are talking about the video games that oh they had God. never seen, like <laughs> right. in the Moral Combat book, to bring it completely a full circle. Exactly. Yeah, the yeah, guys yeah. who had never what was that? What was that video game that you're you... about to say? Night. Yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I already know. That's. I already know. Yeah. Do not be a night trap player. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I think that's a great place to pivot into our world building, Jim, because mm -hmm. I don't think we're going to get more peak than night traps. So yeah. <laughs> uh, let's bust out the dice. And uh, for those of you who aren't aware, the way that this works is that we're going to create an, a scenario, a fantastical scenario, uh, with the help of some dice rolls to kind of guide us in the right direction. So first things first, we're going to roll for the genre. And the genre that we're going to be focusing on today is going to be a good old sword and sorcery genre. Oh, so nice. think Conan the Barbarian. You want to think Michael Moorcock maybe, although he's more a little bit. Anyway, uh, next up, we're going to be rolling for the theme. The theme of our scenario is going to be something forbidden. Oh my. Mm -hmm. And then finally, the thing that we're going to be focusing on during this scenario is an historic event so chris you are our guest you have to start us off what are you thinking when we've got a sword and sorcery tale with a theme of something forbidden and we're focusing on an historic event nice okay yeah that sounds exciting um so first i think if, you know the the uh the essence i always got from like the sword and sorcery stuff is really this kind of like you know old empires kind of like rising up from these sort of like primitive structures and very power focused. And I think it's like the Conan barbarian. So where there's magic, it looks more like sorcery kind of wild magic -y kind of stuff rather than highly learned uh, wizardry mm -hmm. uh, types of stuff. And if it's historical, I'm kind of thinking of like, you know, we can kind of place this in different areas, but either something like ancient China or ancient Egypt, or the Sumerians, Ooh, or, yeah. you know, Mesoamerican, like early Mesoamerican culture, or something like that. This kind of like early empire rising up from, you know, basic agriculture, and these really authoritarian uh, rulers trying to take mm. charge of the, the wider population. And uh, I don't know, that sounds like a pretty good place to start. I, I don't know if we have a preference for like, if we're thinking like historically, mm -hmm. like which area of the world we would want to focus it in on. But there's so little known, right? Who knows if the ancient Egyptians had magic, right? That's why they built the pyramids. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, or, well, it's aliens to they some aliens. Place, so, yeah. 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 I don't, I don't yeah. believe this to be. To be, to be I, of course. I know there no, are no, people no, out there no. that believe this, so I just want to make it clear. I'm not advocating yeah. this. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I had a friend of mine who took a course in archaeology that was called Ancient Aliens. Yeah. Uh, and the what? entire. Hold on. The entire course was the professor debunking every oh, single exactly. claim of ancient that's aliens. Fun. That would be cool. Oh that's yeah, cool. I was like, that's brilliant. I I want that. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, so so I think what we want to focus on is what's the historic event that we want to talk about. So is this a battle? Is it the signing of a Magna Carta? We're sword and sorcery. We're thinking of like archaic power structures. Is it a rise to power? Is the fall of a previous empire? Like, what are we thinking when it comes to this type of stuff? 
Well, one possibility. I, I'm just reading a history of Hawaii, actually, and uh, oh. they don't really get a lot of love in fiction. Mm-hmm. And uh, and of course, this is fa- for us. It's fairly recent history, but even a couple hundred years ago, there was this sort of conquering mm-hmm. of all of the Hawaiian islands by a single ruler. And I'm gonna mangle his name. It was like kind of Mena. I don't. Kamehameha. Yeah. There we go. Okay. You, yeah. you had it right. Yeah. So maybe thinking of 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 that. You know, that sort of like coming out of like the blackness there, there not being any written history before that time period and uh, using this kind of barbaric and perhaps, you know, some sort of like basic magic to overcome mm. the resistance of the other islands with, with something like that work. Yeah. So we've got a, a singular person who's re who's unified an archipelago for the first time. So this is like the formation of an empire is what I'm hearing. Yeah. Okay. Mm. Now we have the theme of something forbidden, so now we obviously have to go with what's the forbidden part. Courtney and Daniel, I'd love to hear from you. I mean, you know me. I'm always down. Okay, we're not talking about blood sacrifice, Courtney. We're not talking about blood. Every blood. time, Courtney. Every time. Um that's a good question. If it's not blood sacrifice, you're gonna have to give me a minute. It's not. You're gonna have to give me a minute. <laughs> she has a pension for this, Chris. I, I don't understand it. I really don't. It's just it's fun. <laughs> well, if it helps, that actually would not have been forbidden in the ancient Hawaii. So. Okay. Uh, okay. Um, yeah. So, so what, again, again, something forbidden. What's the forbidden thing that I'm going to say that whatever the forbidden thing is, is the reason that this figure has ascended to power. <laughs> like them doing the forbidden thing has allowed the archipelago to be united in some way. I like that kind mm-hmm. of narrative. So that's yeah. where I'd like to go. What do we have? What if they're like selling their soul to a, a demon figure, something like that, like joining with um, some, some sort of oh. underworld. Type mm. of yeah. I, I mean, if we're basing it off a Hawaiian culture, can't we just have it be like a, a cool volcano God or a, vo- a nature spirit of something mm-hmm. like that? Volcano demon. <laughs> Why not, right? Yeah. Or, or maybe it's. Uh, I mean, if if it's uniting a, a series of islands, what's more important than the volcano is probably the god of the seas or the mm-hmm. predator of mm-hmm. the seas. So it's like this mm-hmm. god of the deep of some kind. Yeah, I like that. Like some sort of leviathan type creature. Mm. I mean, we could we could have your blood sacrifice because yeah. then you can yeah. chum the water. Yeah. you know, in order for the, throw some to kind of like in there and yeah, yeah. Why? Why <laughs> not? It. Yeah. I mean, it's <laughs> <laughs> is it one entity or is it like multiple sea entities? Uh, that's that's a good question. What are we thinking? Maybe they're they had been multiple, but something that this figure has done has merged oh. them into one like ultra powerful. Uh, yeah. And that's the forbidden thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. So we've, we've, we've essentially taken what were known as the many gods of the sea and you've uh, essentially forced them to coalesce into a singular entity through mm-hmm. some kind of foul forbidden magic. Oh, had they been <laughs> shattered in the past and bringing them together again is, is what's forbidden. And then this leader is, has, has brought them together as he will bring together the islands or she. Oh, there we mm-hmm. go. Yeah, that, that's that's like a fun thing. And so you're island hopping, like reuniting mm-hmm. these shards. Yeah, the and, islands are yeah. the thing. Like Each island is part one of the gods that's mm-hmm. been shattered and he's going to literally bring them together. Okay, yeah, that's that's pretty fun. I, I can I think I can get behind yeah. that. Um, I think we're losing sword and sorcery a little bit by yeah. doing that. But I don't fucking. I care. mean, it could be. Conan. These are all loose rules. Like, I don't fucking yeah. care. Tsunamis you know? and earthquakes and shit. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm with you on that, but uh, <laughs> all right. Well, there could be some, or there could be some like conflict between the magic of the volcano and the magic of the, oh. of the sea, right? Perhaps yeah, that's, that's where the business yeah. is too, that if, if the Hawaiians were mostly worshiping, I think it was Pele was the volcanic goddess. And uh, now they're turning away from her, you know, to uh, mm-hmm. the sea. Um, maybe that's oh. part of the struggle. Maybe there's this like, you know, uh, priesthood or priestesses of Pele were kind of like the leftover remnants of the oh, whole man. system. And mm. whether they're the good guys or the bad guys, I'm not really sure, but you know, that might be part of the conflict. That's cool. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe we can roll a twist and figure out if that's going to help us in any way. Yeah. Because now it's time. I feel like we've gotten to solid in like a solid foundation for what we're, where we're at for the setting. So I'm going to roll a twist and we'll see what happens. Mm-hmm. I was going to say though, that if, if we have this kind of, counter faction that's worshiping the volcano maybe their goal is to set it off oh, um, oh to, to counter to counter whatever's mm-hmm. happening with the sea oh yeah okay so so it now it's like a race between the mm-hmm. unification and the complete utter destruction of the archipelago essentially mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah and now and now we have sacrifices on both and you got people tossing virgins into the volcano <laughs> chumming Perfect. courtney this is this is your setting it's Love a bonanza it. of blood sacrifice <laughs> bonanza of blood sacrifice that's what the book is called well i think it would be blood sacrifice bonanza if, if because <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Nah, like just rolls off the tongue better, yeah it I sounds think. better all right that's fine i'm i'm totally okay with that now i'm gonna roll the die and see what our twist is let's see what we got so our twist is Big Brother is watching. Big Brother, of course, in quotations. Oh. So that means, I mean, we can really take that to be as literal or as figurative mm. as we want it to be. Mm. Mm. Well, I think two, two directions occur to me is one is that could perhaps play back into the sort of volcanic goddess, you know, Pele is somehow mm-hmm. monitoring all of this uh, mm. app- apprehensively. Or perhaps you could even bring it into this was this was about the time that the United Kingdom was oh, discovering yeah. the, what they then called the Sandwich Islands, you know. So perhaps they're um, you know uh, probably malevolent force. Yeah. <laughs> no, uh, that's perfect. Yeah, having an imperialist force kind of like waiting, encircling the island and waiting mm-hmm. to see what mm-hmm. happens and like waiting out. That's that's a really interesting idea. Mm-hmm. You could even have like these. Uh, like spies that start showing up and you're like, oh, that's, that's interesting. That's strange. Like that are like precursors to a, a coming kind of uh war of some kind. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Did, did we nail it? Was that it? Did we just do it in one? <laughs> I think, I think so. We've got, yeah. I mean, to recap, we have this sea God that's been shattered, being brought back together to unify the islands, both figuratively, literally, we've got a volcano God opposed to that happening, a cult of the mm-hmm. volcano goddess, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that's supposedly opposed to that and a leader who was doing the unification and then this little last bit we added right there we go mm-hmm. I, th- yeah, yeah. I think we're good all right nice. yeah. well with that out of the way the world building jam comes to an end we're now going to roll into some rapid fire questions chris i always ask if you're ready no one ever is so we're just going to roll into it <laughs> uh chris ferguson my wife wants to know is cereal a soup uh is cereal a soup no all right. Yes. And, yeah. uh, second question. What have you been playing recently? 
Oh, what I've been playing recently. So on video games, I've actually gone back and I'm playing an old video game called Prey. Um, oh, yeah. So uh, with a lot of video games, I end up picking up games my son has been playing. Uh, and so he, he played that before. And so I'm giving that a try now. It's pretty good. Uh, I'm really bad at it, but it's pretty good. <laughs> and, uh, and of course, I'm, I'm always playing Dungeons & Dragons. Uh, so I'm DMing one game and playing in two others. Nice. 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 You said you were into Pathfinder briefly. Are you on Pathfinder 2 or are you D&D 5e now? I'm mostly D&D 5e. Mm-hmm. I'm, uh, so we had these like campaigns that go on forever. Uh, so the hope is that mm-hmm. when, when one of these ends, we're going to give Pathfinder 2e a, a try. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Gotcha. Uh, rapid fire questions from Daniel and Courtney. Go ahead. Uh, what's your favorite RPG character you've ever played? Ooh. Oh, which of my children do I love the most? Oh, let's see. <laughs> <laughs> I only have one. <laughs> so it's a, uh, no, uh, my, I probably, so I actually, like I said, I, I like to play a lot of female characters and, mm-hmm. and uh, I actually way back in first edition uh, they, they produced in dragon magazine, this witch class, actually. And, uh, and I was also really big into Stevie Nicks at the time. So there's all kind of like, it's all part of one big story. Um, Chris, you should still be into Stevie Nicks. She's one of the best <laughs> musicians of all time. Don't come at me about like Fleetwood Mac's Rumors is a perfect album except for one song. Like, come on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, anyway. I'm with you. I'm with you. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> I'm very passionate about Stevie Nicks. Okay? No argument here. Yeah. <laughs> so I actually played this character. Uh, Zafrida was her name back in first edition. And uh, she was based on that uh, Dragon Magazine 114. I still remember the episode of the uh, edition um, wow. uh, based on this witch class. And I actually in one of my more recent games basically resurrected her and played her again in fifth edition mm-hmm. and just had a ball nice. both times so i'd say she's probably still my uh, my favorite character awesome excellent now i need you to kill your children what was your favorite <laughs> uh character death oh okay Ooh, yeah so in fourth edition um i played a again female sorcerer her name was diana which happens to be my wife's name Mm-hmm. And uh, she had a really epic death. So actually, it was like in I think the second or because th- I think they went up to level thirty in fourth edition. So I think it was around level twenty or either late teens or early twenties. And uh, the gist of it, without getting to a huge narrative, was you know as part of the role play, it was kind of like the Walking Dead sort of scenario that the DM presented me with a situation where she could sacrifice herself to save like literally millions of others. Mm-hmm. Or she can continue on with this quest and still perhaps save them, but it would take, you know, a longer adventure and it may or may not work out. Mm-hmm. Wow. And, uh, and she, uh, you know, I made the decision that she would go ahead and, and sacrifice herself in order to save these, uh, you know, millions of others and, you know, just civilians in some world or whatever. And uh, it was, it was really an epic moment. You know, it probably doesn't come across and trying to describe it in a minute and a half, but it really was this epic moment. And uh, she was also one of my favorite characters. And, uh, you know, in terms of like player attachment stuff, I literally had nightmares for like days afterward. Wow. <laughs> no, no, that's, that's because she died, you know, and, yeah, uh, but I mean, wow. not nightmares, like they were terribly unpleasant. It was like, but it was that sense of grieving uh, for having lost the character. But it really was mm. this, like, in terms of the narrative, it really was this sort of epic um death uh that you know i as the, and she as the as a character had chosen mm-hmm. uh in the situation so yeah wow mm. uh all right uh second to last question is there i would love for you to name someone who you would love to shout out who is not yourself oh okay um i'll be the first person that come to mind would be my wife you know who's always supported me in uh, everything uh, i i've done i've been you know super super lucky 
in uh, finding my best friend and being able to spend my life with her. Uh, and I can't imagine what my life would have been like uh, had that not been the case. Um, probably wouldn't have been as productive. So she would obviously be the person I, I'd love to mm-hmm. shout out. Um, and then, you know, also my dad who died five years ago, I always like to give him a shout out whenever I can, because he was a good guy mm-hmm. and a good dad. So I, I've been lucky with the people that have been in, involved in my, uh, my family life for sure. Absolutely. And finally, where can people find you and your work? Well, now that we said that Twitter is a hellhole, they can follow me on Twitter at uh, CJ Ferguson one 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 one, and uh, <laughs> uh, I also have a website which is just my name, so it's ChristopherJFerguson.com. Not very original. Uh, and then uh, my books, if people got really enticed by them, they can help me put my son through college by buying them on Amazon or Barnes and Noble or any place else they buy books. Fantastic. All right, uh, Chris, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been an absolute pleasure. It's been a lot of fun for me too. Again, thanks for having me on and uh, have a great day. And we're back. Uh, I have to say, really great discussion. I Mm -hmm. feel like we probably could have kept talking for at least another hour. Easily, Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Yeah. Especially about, um, uh, what was it called? Night, um, the game that has the women in it, the senator. Night Trap. You're talking yes. about Night yeah. Trap, Dan. We could have kept talking about Night Trap for some distance, <laughs> I think. I was actually more interested in like his fiction and like maybe uh-huh. talking about like that type of Yeah, we never of got to building. that. <laughs> no, we, we didn't. And that is unfortunate. However, mm-hmm. we do have to keep these interviews at a reasonable amount, I think. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Which is unfortunate. But, you yeah. know, we, we have lives and we have to respect our guests' wishes and stuff like that. I mean, my follow-up question would have been, what's it, if I had another rapid fire, it's what's his favorite serial killer? Because he's into like oh, dark psychological d- You know what? Um, we'll, we'll fire that off at him on, yeah. on Twitter. I'm sure that we can get a good response. Mm-hmm. Um, it might be someone we might even, uh, you know, find underrated ourselves, you know? An underrated serial out. killer. <laughs> yeah, like Paul Kansram or um, I don't know, like Henry Lee Lucas. Uh, there's a bunch of them. <laughs> Who's the Zodiac killer? Um, he's in our government. Uh, Ted Cruz. Um, Ted Cruz's Cruz, dad. Right? Ted, yeah. No, no, no. Not Ted Cruz. Ted Cruz's dad. Oh, no. Yeah, I'm I, saying I it's it was... Ted Cruz. <laughs> no, it's he's too young. You don't understand how time works. Unless he's an immortal Ted time. Ted Cruz dude. could have been 10. Maybe it's more like a title thing. Like the, the old Zodiac killer dies ah. and then it's transferred down. Like yes. a Dread Pirate Roberts. Kind so of. it's like the Dread Pirate Roberts, but of yes. serial yes. killers. Yeah, he's exactly. still killing Ted Cruz. Yes. Right. Yeah. Well, Ted Cruz kills through poor management and like infrastructure. So yeah, I guess you're he not industrial zero killing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh man, yeah. That okay. We're getting hyper political mm. where we really mm. don't need to. Uh, but again, I thought that was some really great, interesting points. Mm. Uh, again, nuance is dead if you want yeah. to have any conversations about anything. You can't do it online. I, I thoroughly yeah. believe that. Send us a, a Twitter at our hellscape at yes. hellscape yeah. at twitter.com. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, it, it really, it should be twitter.hs for hellscape, but um, <laughs> I don't think that the branding would work out for them, mm-hmm. unfortunately. I imagine that people Savvy, would take offense. Yeah, I guess. Unfortunately. Yeah, uh, yeah I, I think that's going to do it for this episode. Um, I, I, again, had a ton of fun. A big mm-hmm. thank you to Dr. Chris Ferguson for coming on with us. Uh, and remember that if you want us to build your world, you go to our website, World Build With Us. We'll build it for you eventually. You know, it's fine. Uh, if you want to follow us on social media, The Hellscape, we are still over at 
Let's World Build on Twitter. You can join our Discord if you want to have real conversations with us, or at least as real as you can get on the internet, with a link for that in the description. And if you're feeling particularly generous, you can give us money over on Patreon for our sweet, sweet patron-only episodes, or just because you're just a good person. Uh, or a generous person. You don't necessarily have to be good in order to give us money. Just want to throw that out there. You're more than willing to be a terrible person. But that'll do it for this episode of World Build with us. Remember that we love you very much. And we're going to get through this together. Until next week. Bye.